leaders might also touch upon what to actually include in the next sanction package. Welcome to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. I am Evi Chiori and this week we are focusing on the informal summit in Versailles and the retaliation from the Russian embassies to a number of countries that implemented the agreed by the EU sanctions against Russia. As EU sanctions have not halted Russia's war on Ukraine, EU leaders are due to meet in Versailles, France, today Thursday, for an informal summit, which is said to be dominated by the bloc searching for ways to urgently address the economic and political fallout of the crisis. To hear more on this, I'm joined by Euractiv's reporter, Alexandra Brzozowski. Alex, welcome back. Uh, For one more week, we are covering the new developments on the war in Ukraine and EU leaders are meeting uh, for an informal summit. What can we realistically expect uh, from the meeting? It's quite interesting since this summit was initially meant to be about investment and budget. Macron's uh, kind of showcase for the country's EU council presidency and also just before the French elections. And Now it is said to be dominated by the EU searching for ways to address the fallout from from the Ukraine war. So first up, um, we will have EU leaders discussing the hot topic of energy and how to keep Europe warm, so to speak, um, despite the potentially looming Russia sanctions on fossil fuels. Um, The Commission has said it aims to reduce European demand for imports of Russian gas by two thirds this year. That was earlier this week. So now one point of contention will be whether a time frame should be agreed. Um, so we might see more discussion on on this and leaders might also touch upon what to actually include in the next sanction package, because we've seen that Poland, for example, was pushing for coal, while others were more reluctant uh, on that as well. So we will see two different documents being adopted tonight. One is the so-called Versailles Declaration, um, as it's dubbed, and um, that is on the overall summit outcome, since this is, a, this is an informal summit and there are no conclusions. And there is a separate statement on Ukraine to be expected. That one has been quite problematic, uh, since um, it is expected to tone down Kiev's hopes for EU candidate status, as we hear, which could make for quite a tense dinner discussion. Over the past week, um, since Ukraine's application for a fast-track process, there has been quite a back and forth on, on, on this issue. Now, how realistic is that leaders will give political consent? There is currently a split between those wanting more ambitious language on the country's chances, um, which are, to my count, roughly 11 or 12 predominantly Eastern, Southeastern European member states. And obviously the Western European countries like Denmark and the Netherlands, um, which, which are more reluctant uh, on this. Interestingly, Germany and France have kept their distance in the discussion so far, which has raised probably some hopes that they might silently consent to it if the others drop the opposition. Realistically, there's not much of a reason not to go ahead with granting Ukraine EU candidate status, according to to our assessment. I mean, Turkey is a candidate country since more than two decades, and it hasn't joined the bloc yet, and probably won't in the near future. So in terms of political messaging now that, that Ukraine is caught in a war with Russia, it would make sense, but it won't help Ukraine in the short term. So we're looking especially at the next days and weeks. When it comes to the legal side, obviously, open questions would remain what what this would mean in practice, depending on what course the war takes and 
um, also how to deal with territorial issues afterwards. But in general, I think um, we would need to wait for the European Commission assessment of the application to understand in detail what, what concerns and options there are. Well, Western sanctions haven't stopped the war in Ukraine yet, and the West is running out of options. Obviously, military force is excluded from these options, but it is becoming clear that the war in Ukraine has impacted the EU's thinking uh, on EU defense. Um, yes, it, it, it definitely has. We reported earlier this week about the latest draft of the strategic compass, the EU's upcoming military strategy documents. I mean, the process has been ongoing for quite some time, but what we've seen across the past three drafts of this document is that Russia has become more and more of a red threat throughout. As a reminder, I mean, the initial draft was met with criticism that the threat from Moscow did not include specifics, such as military threats, weaponizing, energy supply, and hybrid attacks. Well, we've seen all of this in the past few few days. Um, then the second draft, um, the two of us spoke about this actually earlier this year, was more robust in support for the Eastern Partnership. Um, some things have been added, including on security and defense, which has not been really defined in detail, but but it was added on. And now the third draft, and I think that's quite a significant shift in language and content, we see Russia taking center stage. And there's a spelling out of you know actions by Moscow that the EU wants to condemn from explicitly, for example, referencing um, Russia's military aggression in Georgia in 2008, the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, support for separatist groups in, in, in the Donbass region, and also then calling out the spheres of influence that Russia wants to establish specifically. So what is new in this? The document also refers to other legal texts, such, such as the UN Charter um, and the founding documents of the OSCE, including the Helsinki Final Act and, and the Charter of Paris, which all have effectively been put in question by Russia uh, with its decision to invade Ukraine, especially when it comes to you know, territorial integrity of states and borders and, and um, the use of force uh, and the choice of countries uh, to choose their own security arrangements. So that has been added on. And that is clear that the notion of EU as a security provider is kind of taking shape with this as a base. But the question will be effectively on the enforcement, which um, I do not see how this could happen for now. But obviously, we need to take into account that this is this is supposed to be a roadmap and not um, not a final document. Um, but the bottom line, I think, is that it is stronger than before. And uh, now also we also have the element of, you know, emphasizing unity and solidarity in relations with NATO, G7, UN and, and other partners. So it seems a bit that the French understanding of strategic autonomy has been um, killed by Russia's war in Ukraine. Well, thank you, Alex, for being with us uh, once more. You're listening to Euractiv's Beyond the Byline podcast. Subscribe to our podcast newsletter on euractiv.com slash newsletters. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other fields, you can listen to our digital brief podcast and agri-food brief podcast. 
Now, moving to another topic, the Russian embassies in a number of countries, such as Greece, North Macedonia and Bulgaria, sort of bullied their respective countries after these countries implemented the number of sanctions imposed by the EU. Now, I've been following the news coming from my country, Greece, and uh, the Russian embassy located in Athens caused a number of uh, reactions from the media, but also from politicians. Basically, the embassy was calling politicians and the media to stop spreading fake news regarding the coverage of the war in Ukraine and to stop the anti-Russian propaganda. Now, more specifically, the Russian embassy in Greece uh, posted on their official social media that the Greek media have been hiding for the past eight years the allegedly bombing of Donbass by Ukrainian forces. Now, to get a feel on what's the current situation in one of these countries, I spoke with Krasen Nikolov from Euraktiv Bulgaria. Krasen, what was the reaction from the Russian embassy when Bulgaria followed the sanctions imposed by the EU against the Kremlin? Ambassador Mitrofanova used uh, the national holiday of Bulgaria of uh, the 3rd of March uh, to spread the false historical interpretation of our common history. So uh, uh, let me be uh, short to explain short. Uh, for uh, 144 years ago, the Russian Imperial Army, uh, with mainly uh, Russians, U- Ukrainians, Poles, and fin- Finns as uh, soldiers, uh, defeated the Ottoman Empire and achieved uh, the establishment of uh, the new Bulgarian state, as uh, uh, established the Bulgaria's uh, independent state. Uh, so this act of Imperial Russia, which was uh, destroyed by the Bolsheviks uh, a few decades later, uh, was compared by the Russian ambassador here in Sofia to Russians' war, uh, Russian special operation for the liberations of the separatists in Donbass, while Putin is trying to, re- uh, the, to recreate the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. So uh, Mitrofanova was uh, then forced to apologize, of course, uh, to the Bulgarian prime minister for calling some Bulgarian citizens an insulting word that means something like uh, Washington servants. After apologizing, the ambassador uh, has not yet spoken again. And how is affecting the current situation with Russia, the national economy, businesses and uh, tourism, of course? The main effect in the, uh, uh, on the Bulgarian economy, uh, economy is, of course, the inflation. Uh, but uh, this is uh, something that is valid worldwide because of the energy prices, of course. Bulgaria is uh, particularly vulnerable because it is perhaps the EU heavily dependent on Russia's energy resources uh, in the EU. So the largest oil refinery in the Balkans is Bulgaria's Neftuhim plant refinery, which is owned by the WUKA in Bulgaria. This is the largest company in Bulgaria with an annual turnover of uh, maybe over uh, 3 million euros. So nearly, and after that, nearly uh, 100,000 Russians have uh, stakes in Bulgarian companies or own property in the country, mainly on the Bulgarian Black Sea coast. At the same time, Bulgarian banks have insignificant uh, financial exposures to to the Russian banks, so it's not a risk. 
for our fi fi financial uh, system, but it's a risk for our energy resources. Uh, particularly severe blow to the tourism uh, is not expected also due to the absence of the Russians before, because they were not uh, many in uh, previous uh, years here on the Black Sea coast or in the uh, at the Bulgarian mountains resorts. But the main risk is uh, is due the fact that Bulgaria is only 200 kilometers in a straight line from the wall. So this can scare some people to, to have a good holiday here or to, to afraid being in the Black Sea coast because uh, the Snake Island is uh, just uh, maybe 100 kilometers from the Bulgarian borders. But the same effect is likely to be felt in Poland, Slovakia and Romania, of course. Well, thank you, Krasen, and our time is up for this week. I am Evi Kiori, and this was your Actives Beyond the Byline podcast. We will be back on your feed next week. Until then, subscribe to our podcast newsletter and visit youractive.com for the latest news. And don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening.